Welcome, everybody, to Hopeful Majority, episode number eight. As always, I'm your host, Manu Meal. Today's question, are we actually that divided? And hopefully, the answer surprises you. Get what I did there? Hopeful Majority, hopefully. Anyway, look, Tom Fishman, CEO of Starts With Us, he's going to be the guest. As you know, every week we come at you live, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content, because we've got a majority to build. And importantly, every Monday as we have these conversations, we have these dialogues, we're going to need your support. Remember, leave a review if you're on Spotify, Apple, leave a like, subscribe on YouTube. We've got that majority to build and you're a part of it. Let's get on with episode number eight. Are we that divided? I've got a hypothesis. I've got a hunch. And I'm going to warn you, it's a contrarian one. It's a contrarian and what many might say naive hypothesis. And that is that not only do we misunderstand how divided we are, but in fact, I think we completely overestimate our division and completely underestimate the possibility for us to actually find the common ground between us as as Americans, as humans, to build forward, to create progress. I think we completely overestimate our division and completely underestimate who we are as people. Now, don't turn that dial because I can already hear it. I can already hear it. I can hear you saying, this guy's completely off his rocker. What is he talking about? I mean, just turn on the news menu, go to the newspaper. When I talk to my neighbors, when I talk to my friends, what are you saying? We're, we're not that divided or or maybe something even more hokey pokey that, in fact, we can actually find common ground. Of course, we're divided. Well, here's what I said. I didn't say we're not divided. I said that we misunderstand our divisions. And the reason why that's uniquely important to understand is because when we can better analyze and assess why we might be potentially divided, or in fact, whether or not there's a perception gap in this country, suddenly the conversation changes from the other side is my enemy and they have to be extinguished, that we have to win a zero-sum political game. Suddenly it changes from that to Not only can I work with those people, but they still live in this country and I respect them. I appreciate them. I understand their humanity. I might disagree with their what, but I agree with their how. Again, this is a game of mindset. It's a temperament. Now, look, this conversation, this episode is going to get a little cerebral. It's going to get a little number heavy because a lot of people will give us flack because they say, what is this hopeful majority concept coming out of? Where are the numbers? But there's, in fact, a real intellectual backbone behind the argument and my hypothesis that we misunderstand how divided we are, which is leading us into a vicious cycle of continuous polarization that prevents us from solving the problems that desperately need to be solved. Two numbers. Two numbers I want you to focus on. In fact, Tom Fishman, who I talked about in the introduction, that'll be the guest on on, on the conversation today, is the CEO of the company, an organization starts with us that actually commissioned one of these studies. But two studies, two numbers I want to point you to. First, Less than 20% of Americans voted in our 2022 primaries. And number two, the media covered extreme partisan candidates and politicians four times more than the problem solvers. And why are those two things significant? About 80% of Americans don't vote in our primaries, and the hyper-partisan extreme politicians get four times the coverage than the problem solvers on both sides. Why is that relevant? Well, the first study, 80% Bipartisan Policy Center, came up with this study. It's entitled 2022 Primary Turnout. You can look it up. The reason why I think it's important to recognize that 
about 80% of Americans don't vote in our primaries, especially in 2022, is because the politicians that ultimately get filtered to the end of the general election, as a reminder, primaries happen before a general election. So when you're entering as a candidate, you know that you only have to cater to 20% of people. And those 20% of people are on the extremes, not just the ideological extremes, but the temperamental extremes. Those are the people that are prisoners, oftentimes their own ideology. Those are the people that are incredibly closed-minded. Those are the people that are incredibly passionate, which is all right. But as we say in the hopeful majority, passion is not mutually exclusive with reason and practicality. Passion is not mutually exclusive with being curious and open-minded. Passion is not mutually exclusive with understanding the other side. These people, the 20%, so when you're a politician, every incentive you've got is to run to the ideological extreme because running to that ideological extreme is what's going to help you win that vote. And so when you and I, the 80%, vote in our general election, well, we're picking from some slim pickings. We're picking from what some might, let's say, reductively call the crazy candidates. I'll say the partisan extremes, but specifically the temperamental extremes because, again, we don't have a problem with people on the ideological extremes. You can believe whatever it is you want to believe, but as long as you're willing to be challenged, as long as you're willing to think, as long as you're willing to work with the other side, that's all right. That's all right. Second study, starts with us commission this. The media covers extreme politicians four times more. You can see this on starts with dot us right now. That means that when I'm in Congress, when you're in Congress, or anybody listening to this in Congress right now, when they're working, they know that they will be rewarded for being divisive. They'll get more eyeballs for being divisive. They'll get people's engagement for being divisive and get no return for trying to actually solve problems. They'll get no return for working in what might some might say bipartisan fashion. They'll get very little coverage, if any, for solving a problem and a lot of coverage for breaking. That's incredibly unfortunate. That's incredibly unfortunate. So 80% four times coverage. Now, you say, well, Manu, that's all right. You know, fine. There's a media perception gap. It seems like the media is painting this. Well, why, why is that? Why is that? Or maybe why is it that only 20% of Americans vote in the primaries? Well, that 20% question, I'm actually going to hold to a future episode. And in fact, in episode one and two, we touch on this a little bit. If you want to go there where we talk about the apathy that exists in our politics, the exhaustion that exists in our politics. In fact, I think in this conversation, I might actually ask Tom about what we mean by the exhausted majority. But let's focus on the media for a quick second and the politicians. I think that there's a tremendous profit in dividing us because engagement rates, they're driven by the extremes. They're driven by oftentimes the clicks and the clicks are driven by, well, what what catches people's attention? What gets the blood boiling? What convinces me that the Americans that disagree with me are fundamentally evil? Well, now at this point of the conversation, the other question arises, well, all right, you know, fine, the media, again, there's a perception gap. The candidates that are often filtered at the end of the election cycle are a little on the extremes. But how does that change the fact that we do have real divisive arguments on guns, that we have real divisive arguments on climate, that a lot of us disagree on criminal justice, on immigration? Remember. I never said we're not divided. I said we misunderstand our divisions. There's a difference between disagree on policy 
and actually agreeing on values. Starts with us, the same organization, Tom Fishman will be on next. Came out with an interesting, interesting study that showed that nine out of 10 Americans, Republicans and Democrats, value and share deep alignment on five principles, accountable government, rule of law, representative government, personal accountability, respect and compassion. Then in fact, there is significant possibility for progress because actually most Americans agree on values. They might disagree on policies, but they agree on values. And you say, well, how is that possible? It's because the lives we live, the stories, the experiences cause us to fall on different sides of different policy issues. But at the end of the day, we're on team human. Most of us are on team human. Nine out of 10 of us are on team human. And why is any of this significant? Well, if one, you understand, and we understand that there's a perception gap that when you hear Republican, or you hear Democrat, and we paint certain characters or certain arguments to that person. Remember episode seven, the last conversation we had with Amir, we talked about the complexity of identity that in fact, just because you're a Democrat doesn't mean you believe everything on this side, or just because you're a Republican, you don't believe everything on this side. That there's a perception gap that we're likely, again, to overestimate our differences in values. But in fact, when we agree on values, that creates the fodder, the fertile soil for progress. And then recognizing that the media is giving four times more coverage to the extremes means that we as people have to start changing our behavior so that the media is incentivized to reward the problem solvers. Now that you know that those leaders that reflect the hopeful majority in Congress get no coverage because we won't click on those stories means that it is not in the media's incentive or interest for them to give coverage. So it's time to flip the narrative. It's time to change the incentive structures, knowing that only 20% of people show up in primaries, which means that we get the crazy candidates at the end of the election cycle to pick from. How sad would it be if the American experiment, one of the most ambitious experiments in the history of humanity, an experiment in democracy, ended over misunderstandings on how divided we are. That in fact, if politicians are getting 4x more coverage when they're extraordinarily partisan, and only 20% of us are voting in primaries, and that in fact, nine out of 10 Americans actually agree on most values, well, there we go. That's all we need. That's the motivation we need, we have to build the hopeful majority so that we can recognize and empower that Not only are we not that divided, but in fact, we overestimate our divisions and we underestimate the possibility for us to find common ground to solve our problems. Let's get on with conversation with Tom Fishman, CEO of Starts With Us. Tom Fishman, welcome to The Hopeful Majority, sir. Manu, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited. I love the show thus far. It's very cool to get to be uh, a guest early on. This is how the guests like that were early on. Uh, Mark Marin and a lot of those uh, podcasts must have felt. I'm going to go back and say I was there super early, so I'm pumped to be here with you. Well, as I as I told you, you're, you're one of the OGs of the hopeful majority, and importantly, as I was telling you before this, uh, I appreciate your act of charity uh, coming on. But I have to say that the listeners have been really intrigued and interested about lots of the folks that are actually like trying to build this movement. And you and I were together last week in what Gettysburg? Yeah, and Gettysburg, and, Pennsylvania. And, and we had a conversation in like some biker bar and we were just we hanging did. out. We <laughs> did uh, because y- you and I avid bikers. So it's where we usually hang out. That's where we got to uh, connect. Yeah, it was it was great to get to see you in person. That was fun. Exactly. For anyone wondering, um, and you can obviously look into this, but Tom is such an extensive and amazing resume in the media world. And and now you're doing a lot of this work. And so I was just so grateful to make the pitch to you in a biker bar about about coming on to the hopeful majority. 
Yeah. Uh, well, you didn't have to pitch it that hard. It's, um, it's exciting to be able to talk about this stuff and, you know, we can spend maybe 30 seconds on the mutual admiration society, but I'm just absolutely always inspired by the work you're doing that the team at bridge USA is doing. And I think there's so much, uh, uh, work to be done, but so much of it will be done by, uh, our, our, our youth, our younger members of society who have the energy and the fearlessness and the no sense of what's already been done, uh, um, or, or rather, no sense that something that they want to do can't be done. And that is the kind of uh, energy and strategic naivete that I think uh, the movement needs and that the country needs is just bigger ideas from fresh uh, blood. This is why I appreciate you. Strategic naivete, that's like one of the kindest ways to describe my naive optimism. So so here here we are. Look, you know, there's there's a couple parts of this conversation that we can take this. The central question, as I as as you and I were talking about this beforehand, is that this episode is trying to tackle is, uh, are we actually that divided? And and of course, you lead an amazing organization called Starts With Us, and and we want to go there and have that conversation. But before that, like, I want to ask you you had this really interesting life before doing the work that you're doing now with starts with us where we're trying to, you know, bridge political differences and help Americans see the, the commonality and all of the divisiveness. Um, what got you interested? Like what, what was your sort of story? What motivated you to, to take the leap and get in? Because I think a lot of people listening also want to take that leap. Yeah. So I, I, I won't take you through my, whole resume but maybe for your listeners um i come from the media and tech world you know i mean before that uh you know uh, dabbled in the sciences and the hard sciences i was a physics guy in school but ultimately professionally i got into social media and digital media very early which means uh you know i I saw stuff as it was I, i remember distinctly Manu, when it was fun, like it was just very fun and silly i mean talk about naivete i mean it was just the early days that felt really creative and very early on um you could see as um i guess as social media in particular became more professionalized both as a marketing medium and as and community management and all these things that are now so obviously full-time jobs like it that wasn't like that not that long ago i feel like an old guy talking. hold on wait, wait really quickly i gotta ask you do you say social yeah. media was fun once upon a time was this like I'm when the dinosaurs you, roamed the earth? What, what was this? L- listeners, sit down, lest you lest you fall over in shock. Yeah, it was. Um, it just felt like a new frontier, but but the inevitable sort of unstoppable professionalization of this stuff, of which I was a part at MTV, and then I worked at Facebook for a while, and then was at a I was the GM of an interactive video tech startup called Echo, which which um, did, did did really cool work. But I existed at the intersection of media and tech as a lot of um, what we now know to be very mainstream, uh, you know, social media platforms um, were sort of emerging and becoming um, venues for everything from marketing to PR to, uh, you know, to, to, of course, community management and, and, and original programming. So I was, I was at MTV at a brand that was really invested in trying to uh, connect with youth at a time, the, you know, the TV network maybe wasn't doing that as well as it once was. And so it was, it was a very cool spot. Um, to be in and in so doing in sort of, uh, you know, being fortunate to work on some great teams and with some great brands through MTV and then being in um, the belly of the beast over at Facebook for a while. And, uh, you know, very complex relationship uh, with that social network, but uh, learned a ton, uh, undeniably learned an absolute ton there. Um, 
I had picked up this collection of yeah, like like uh, what is it? What does he say? Liam Neeson in uh, in that movie. Like I, I had a very specific set of skills of how to scale up audiences and engage them and program um, for them and really become obsessed with with people through digital and try to crystallize communities around passion points and things like that. So it was a thing that I had done and then had this kind of boot camp in product development and tech um, and and kind of management as I uh, got, you know, uh, longer in the tooth in my career. So, and um, so, so, I'll, I, so I had these skills and then the like, you know, the intersection of me becoming a father and the pandemic and uh, the summer of 2020, which saw George Floyd's murder and a lot, lots of other social unrest. Just this feeling of like, okay, you know, the, the what's next um, that keeps many of us restless, you know, as we think about what's next in our, in our careers, it just didn't feel like there was another obvious step for me uh, that was getting me excited on the for-profit side. But what I was excited about was trying to point these skills uh, at something, at a, at a, at a problem or, or at a challenge. And, and I connected with Starts With Us because, um, because they were looking to fill a CEO seat with somebody who maybe had that specific set of skills. So here I am. You know, what's what's so interesting, there, there's two pieces of this. One is somebody that's listening right now. They're like, oh my God, Tom, as you said, it was in the belly of the beast. So you're like, you're like a collectible man. I mean, you're one of the people that has made it out, is now working on the problem. And they're like, Manu, yeah. ask him all about the algorithms and all about what's going on. And and I want to go there. I want to ask you, you know, about uh, where you think it, it, it maybe not went wrong, but where it went from just being fun and interesting new frontier to what it is now, which is something that seems to be a polarizing wedge. But before that, I have to say that I've, I've part of the reason why I have so much respect for you and look up to you from a work standpoint is because you worked in the private sector, made a great living, and now you're focused on a problem that you see as incredibly pertinent to society. And I think a lot of folks are in that interesting headspace where they want to find purpose in the work they're doing. And at the same time, you know, have financial needs and family needs. So just quickly on that personal note, like yeah. how do you navigate that? And, and, and like, why are you so deeply passionate about this specific problem? Yeah. So those are two big and related questions. I, I might, pardon me, I might answer them in reverse order. Yeah. So I think I'm passionate about this problem because, uh, on my best days, I think, uh, I'm good at empathizing with a lot of different kinds of people and communicating with them constructively and, um, and maybe making, um, maybe doing a good job of making them feel safe or like, I won't judge them if we think differently. And I've always kind of been like that, even as a kid, I think in a lot of ways, um, growing up in Queens on the, you know, Mm -hmm. the schoolyard, you, you have to, uh, you learn how to talk and you learn how to get along with a lot of different kinds of people. It's dense and it's congested and you're on the bus and it's, you know, it's just like a, it's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a nurture to the nature. I think I might be a little naturally wired like that, but it certainly was, was sharpened, um, on the main streets, college point, um, kidding. They're not that, many, but <laughs> you, you know, I did a working class area I grew up and you sort of, you know, you, you pick up some of those skills, but, um, yeah, it's a it's a skill I thought I had and that I felt like I benefited from in so the thing about being in a social media team in the early days of social media, this is all connected, is uh, everybody wanted to own social media in a corporate environment, you know, you had uh, the digital people and the marketing people and the press people and everybody was, you know, it's like where does it sit and was it and I had this like very cool role as sort of interfacing with everybody and um I think 
tying them together. And it was just like a, a it was a thing I felt like I could do. And um, when I saw, I'm just going to sound unbelievably arrogant. I realized. So when you clip it, make sure this part of my uh, uh, disclaimer is in there. But as toxic polarization and communication breakdown started to happen on mass. I guess I allowed myself and continue to indulge myself the thought that this thing that I'm good at, I think, again, on my best days, my personal life, um, if I have a, a great team and, um, you know, some, some, some resources to try to uh, scale the idea of what's possible when we uh, bias towards making each other feel a little safer, towards minimizing the judgment, maximizing the assumption of good intentions, um, that we might be able to make a dent in this problem. And especially as a part of our broader collection of organizations like yours at Bridge USA, but there's so many great ones out there. Mm. We both know and love Braver Angels and all these other, all these other organizations. I thought, Hey, um, maybe an organization that's modeled after the intersection of these kinds of skills and using social media and technology to scale these kinds of skills and stories of um, people who are doing this successfully might be able to add something really unique to the space of overcoming toxic polarization. So I'm thinking about titling this conversation in this episode, We Are Not That Divided, which is a very bold statement to make. It almost sounds, again, yeah. very naive at, at best and and hopelessly misguided at worst. Um, but I want to I wanna take a moment to actually hold on you as a young person in Queens, right? And you mentioned that you're somebody that is able to empathize with a lot of different perspectives. You probably had to adapt. You had to grow up in a tough environment. You had to figure out, you know, especially even your family history, like how to just be an individual but also fit in. Do you think there's something like particular with you as a person that makes you more likely to be somebody that is willing to empathize with a lot of different perspectives and somebody that's willing to engage in in ways in which people feel more connected? Because I think that one of the challenges in society seems to be that a lot of people are just very mistrusting these days. A lot of people are fearful. Yeah. A lot of people feel, you know, alienated. A lot of people feel lonely. Uh, what what makes you particularly likely or oriented towards somebody that is willing to be more empathetic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, I do think that there are some things ab about maybe uh, just how I am naturally that are geared towards that. Uh, kind of interaction and kind of um, connection with people. And I, I only say that um, there's a natural element to it because I was, I was like that as a kid, as a young kid. And I, and I knew I was, and I, you know, and, and I, I think it was a, a precociousness that I would, you know, or I was a little bit of an early kind of advancement that I could interface and interact with adults in a unique way. And they'd be, you know, sort of impressed and think, oh, you know, what a smart kid. And that made me feel good. Um, you know, if I'm not that smart, like I think that this part of me was um, was maybe a little advanced, but I want to be careful because my maybe being wired that way, um, it doesn't mean that it's hard. I think that, again, just because maybe it come, happened to come a little, nat a little natural to me or I was uh, uh, encouraged to do it by some feedback I got as a kid. That's that's a unique thing maybe in my life. But I don't think that the basics of what it takes to interact with other people across differences and to do that in a way that's constructive and to do that in a way that maintains um, honesty and authenticity and fidelity to your passionate beliefs. And you and I probably spend, um, you know, 40% of our 
waking professional lives telling people that this isn't just about hugging it out by the campfire and agreeing to disagree. And, you know, it's like the point is uh, and the opportunity is for people who really um, don't agree on things or have different perspectives on different kinds of problems and different life experiences to come together. And in that hot forgery, uh, create and, and hammer out new ideas. Uh, which is, I think, a big part of the American dream. So, but but zooming back in, I think that anybody can do it. It's a thing that, uh, again, maybe comes a little natural to me mm-hmm. just because of some some things about my personality or or my environment that I grew up in. But I think that anybody can do it and see the benefits. And those benefits aren't, I, I say, just the be- when we talk about the benefits of why it's important to con- connect and cooperate with people who are different than you and have different perspectives and maybe piss you off a little bit. Like, why is that important to do uncomfortable things? It's not just because, do we want to ease divisions? Yes. Do we want to prevent violence? Yes. Do we want to cooperatively solve problems from the local to the national, to the environmental, to the technological, uh, to the geopolitical? Yes, of course, of course, of course. But we don't even have to draw those super long lines. Like being good at connecting with many different kinds of people affects you positively in your life right now. Uh, when you, whatever job you've got, uh, whatever your family is like, whatever your relationships are like, you are a sharper thinker and a more influential communicator and a more effective negotiator and a better solver of problems when you have when you're more curious, when you're more compassionate, and when you have the courage to sit with the discomfort of people who disagree with you and mix it up a little bit. And I'm going to do the disclaimer right now, asterisk right here, right? Sitting with discomfort is easy for some people to say. It might be easy for me to say uh, that sitting uh, in the discomfort of talking to somebody who's different than me is a good thing to do. You know, I'm, uh, you know, it could have to do with my, how I present, my race, my privilege, all these different things. Privilege, these are real things. But just like anyone can exercise and get stronger, anyone can stretch out of their comfort zone a little bit when the time is right for them to exercise these muscles and get a little stronger. Anybody can do it. Everybody's comfort zone is a different shape and size. But if all of us are trying when we can, to stretch out of that comfort zone, to make connections with people who are a little different than us, the aggregate effect is incredibly valuable, not just for society, but for us as individuals in all those ways that I just described. Forget the complexity of society. You're just saying it just helps you be a better person, a better human. That's it. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to even, I'm going to refine that a little bit. A more yeah. effective person. That's the thing. It's the, it's the, that's the value. That's the utility. That's the, um, I'm trying not to say value proposition, <laughs> corporate. You know, but, BS, but let but me actually hold on it. this because I think one of the things that you've really pioneered and thought a lot about, uh, as you think about building a movement called starts with us to, you know, help people see beyond those differences and practice exactly what you're saying, which is let's be open-minded. Let's be curious. The three C's, right? Curiosity, compassion, and courage. Hurt. See, I'm already a spokesperson, man. I'm it. already a spokesperson, you but you, it, it's, it all, you've really focused on the fact that this stuff and this work, like the quote unquote hopeful majority, all these things, they have to benefit people in their daily life. Like forget yeah. the complexity of politics. What you're saying right now is very profound, which is talking to people that are different than you, listening to people that are different than you just helps you be a more effective person in your daily life. And you're saying that that case is important to make to the I, average person. I, it's more than important. I'm going to, I think it's crucial. 
And I think one of the things that um, that you and I and and everybody in the broader sort of um, collection of organizations, the, the the field of organizations that look like ours, could benefit from. And I'll say this um, both, I think, humbly and assertively. A part of the benefit of, I think, my being a capitalist bore uh, for the most of my career up until coming on to lead starts with us is that I am uh, obsessed with, uh, with value proposition, with the, we're, 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 um, we're selling an idea. And even if it's not for a financial transaction, Manu, you and I might think that, okay, maybe our organizations are in competition for people's attention or people's memberships or with the other organizations that um, share our organization's missions. We are in competition with TikTok. We are in competition with Netflix. We are in competition with the NFL. Anything that draws people, draw, draws attention um, in an attention economy is by its definition, uh, you know, a competitor of ours. And that means to me, we need to put uh, tools and products and ideas and programming in front of people that is competitive with those other entities and with those other companies. Mm-hmm. So think about it. If you're if really you're quickly, what is... Please. What is the idea? What is the idea? Just crisp, just crystal clear so that people have a clear understanding. When you say there's an idea that we're competing for in this broader attention economy with all the other ideas, what is that idea? I think for us, the notion that overcoming toxic polarization on the path to more cooperative problem solving, which is how Starts With Us talks about our mission and, and presumably some, you know, very much aligned with yours and with, and with other organizations like ours, that is an idea that needs to be uh, sold to people as something that when, so when I talk about all these, va- these uh, upsides and these values and, um, and these benefits that being more curious and compassionate and courageous have, that's because I need somebody uh, that if there's a single parent who is working a job and picking up their kids and has got to make it to the PTA meeting and got to run out of milk and got to go shopping and they're tired and they're going to go that you are competing with every other thing that person has to do in their life with the idea that they ought to do some extra work to overcome toxic polarization on the path to improving their own life and improving society. And the, uh, that's the bad news is that that's very hard, but the good news is that we have something incredible and honest to, uh, to sell quote unquote, which is, the reality that the skills that we're putting out into the world do make you a more effective person. They do make you a better partner to your spouse and colleague to your coworker and maybe parent to your kid or kid to your parent. And it, it's on us to articulate those benefits. So I, I, I want to play devil's advocate for a moment because I can hear somebody, for example, that single mother who's taking care of her kid and going to the grocery store, the, the, the kid growing up in Queens right now, or, uh, you know, the skeptical young college student like me, who's, who's like, Tom, you know, all these skills sound great, but we seem to be living in this incredibly divided moment in our country. All this just seems like, like, what's the point? You know, what's the point? I, I just, I'm throwing up my hands. If you're, if you're listening to this and not watching this, I'm throwing up my hands just saying, what's the point? Yeah. Like, how do you respond to that? Just very basic premonition that comes out when somebody, when you're talking to somebody about this and quote unquote, selling them the idea of open-mindedness, curiosity. What's the point, Tom? Yeah. Uh, the point is that we, uh, as, uh, American citizens have an opportunity to 
improve our lives and improve the world for the lives of our kids, if we have them, and to solve the problems that affect us from the personal to the communal uh, to the national in adjusting our mindset and our culture. That's the point. It's like, you know, I mean, I suppose you could ask, like, what's the point of CrossFit or what's the point of a growth mindset or what's the point of going to school or, you know, or, or, you know, what's the point of any investment in the improvement of the self and the community? That's a cynical question. And I guess it's at some point, if you kept going, but why, but why, but why, like my kids do, I might say, I don't know, because I said so. And that might be unsatisfying. But I think that for those of us who are a part of uh, the 87% of Americans who are exhausted with how politically divided we are, people who are frustrated with our government's sporadic inability to make progress on issues locally or nationally, and who are invested in a future, whether you have kids or not, that feels like, you know, we have something to, uh, um, to add to improving our world for future generations. This gives us a direct way to do that that has immediate personal benefits starting immediate starting now well, immediate and that we can uh, we can um, really shoot those forward into the future. I'm going to escape past the the point where you just you you know you made the the obvious uh, comparison that me and your kids are very similar because we both will keep asking but why uh, putting yeah. aside my reptilian three year old brain for a quick second you just said this you did you just say we're part of the eighty seven percent. What is that? Where where did that yeah. come from? What do you mean the eighty seven percent of the exhaustion majority? I'm just curious, like what what that means. Yeah, so let me let me uh, just back up for a second for some context. So it's, it starts with us. Uh, there are right. I mentioned that our, our mission is to equip hundreds of millions of Americans to overcome toxic polarization on the path to more effectively solving our toughest problems. And I mentioned that I'm here because we're doing that in a to lead the organization to do that in a specific way that it, that utilizes the power of uh, of storytelling and technology and um, and sort of the modern tools at our fingertips to drive scale to make these ideas mainstream. Um, and one of the ways that we do that, you know, we, we, we do that in a few different ways. I like to say, again, uh, putting the corporate hat on, put the, you know, warning, but we do, we illuminate, we demonstrate, and we activate. And the, the illuminate part of what we do often uh, involves unearthing or presenting data or undertaking research to show people the causes and the effects of um of toxic polarization and the role that we play in it demonstrate means we use storytelling to show the powerful upside of when we collaborate across lines of difference and activate means we put tools in the hands of millions of people to spread the ability to uh, cooperate effectively across lines of difference so i'm talking about the illuminate section here hmm. so one of the early pieces of research we did uh here it starts with us was a simple uh single question poll asking people uh you know ideologically diverse, demographic diverse, but all American, uh, you know, how they felt about uh, their, you know, were they uh, exhausted with the nonstop political division overtaking our country? It was a five point scale, you know, from uh, strongly disagree, strongly agree, either agree or strongly agree was 87% of the Americans that we polled with you. 87% of the Americans that you polled are exhausted by the toxicity of our politics. The, yeah, the toxic division in our politics. What do you so, think, really quickly, what do you think that means? Like what, what, what do you think is yeah. the significance of that number? Uh, so what I, 
I think that means that, um, pardon me, I believe that means that we have a common ground to build upon. And to the question of whether or not we're really all that divided, the answer is complex. Because I, I think that um, we can't quite say no, because when we look out on you know the window or we look in social media, we can see there's clearly a lot of division about issues, right? Strong, passionate disagreement, often, not always, um, and maybe not what we see most of algorithmically or, you know, on cable news or whatever, but often quite well-reasoned. There's different opinions on like the classic wedge divisive issues from, the, you know, abortion sure. rights and access to immigration to uh, gun rights and safety, all, the, all these different things, right? That, that very reasonable and rational people can have different opinions on. So of course we're divided on, um, on that level. But when we do a poll that shows that 87% of us across ideological uh, lines of difference are exhausted with the divisiveness. And we recently, uh, we, there's another poll we ran as part of our illumination work. We did a poll uh, similarly of a, represent, a representative sample of Americans that showed that nearly nine in 10 Democrats and nearly nine in 10 Republicans agreed on six core American values. Hmm. Everything from the need to learn from our past to improve our country's future to uh, uh, a government needing to be representative of its people, a government needing to be accountable to its people, to the need for people to be American citizens, to be compassionate and respectful across lines of difference. You can go to citizensolutions.us if you want to check out the full study. Nine in 10 Republicans and nearly nine in 10 Democrats agree across the board on these six values. But, and there's always a but, only a third of each uh, party believes that the other party agrees with those values. Complete perception So there's gap a perception gap, right. Enormous. So what this tells us, we see the 87% stat agreeing that we're uh, exhausted with the divisiveness. We see the nine in 10 Democrats and Republicans agreeing on core values, but disagreeing that the other party uh, uh, you know, feels the same. We're not that divided when it comes to the core values and the way that we want to show up. And that is the fertile common ground wherein we can plant the seeds of the future's common good. That is where solutions begin. But there's a lot of work to be done to reestablishing trust because we'll say they don't vote that way. They don't, uh, you know, that's that's what they say. That's not how they act. But the research shows that even the high level agreement on these values is a great starting point. And that's not something that we just say and believe. Partners of ours like the Convergence uh, Center for Policy Resolution have spent the last couple decades building consensus based I, I want to I want to really quickly just really quickly I got to give you credit I got to give you credit because I know you, you, you're going to keep talking about the value of this and you sound really smart doing it but we got to sell this thing man we got to sell this thing uh, there's something there's yeah. a sentence you said, I just marked it 2740 27 minutes 40 seconds you said that there is and I'm going to send you this quote afterwards because I think it's really powerful which is that there uh is a perception gap which means that the six out of 10 values that, fo or that there's six or so values that folks agree on and that that commonality within those values is upon which we can plant the fertile seeds for people to exercise or whatever, whatever common good. You know, whenever people hear this stuff, and I mean, you see this on social media all the time, they're like, this is some hokey pokey BS nonsense. It's like basically, you know, just a bunch of 
to, uh, you know, just a bunch of crap to sell and get a bunch of followers so that, you know, you can sell some snake oil to a bunch of people when we are actually incredibly divided. But what you're saying is that on fundamental values, the 87% of Americans that are so exhausted are largely in line. And in fact, it's probably more than that 87%, but let's take that 87%. There's alignment there. Here's my question. Yeah. That all sounds great. And yet the moment I walk out of this room, why does it all feel like a shit show? Like why, yeah. why, why doesn't this number meant? And, and, and I think I'll tell you, I'll just telegraph where I'm taking this. I'm taking this to the media because I think what starts with us is really innovating on is the media and your other study that I looked up that people should go online at, at starts with us website, the, the Forex coverage and we'll go there. But like, why do you think it is that this number does not manifest and seem to comport with the reality that most people feel, which is that we live in an incredibly divided time? Yeah, because we live in a funhouse mirror version of reality uh, that where primarily, I mean, there's all these, there's all of these incentives surrounding us. I would say primarily, but not only. You mentioned our media ecosystem. People can go see that. It's another study we ran uh, called "Change the Coverage." If you go to change uh, uh, change the coverage, what's the finding of that study? Yeah, the finding of that study is that uh, we looked at a few month period where. The top outlets uh, in cable news programs and digital news outlets <clears throat> covered uh, the most hyperpartisan politicians, the seven most hyperpartisan uh, divisive politicians, uh, over four times more than they covered the, mo- the seven most consistently bipartisan uh, politicians. Four times more. Yeah, over four. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Money. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's exactly it. It's Eyeballs. money, it's clicks. I mean, this is what, well, well, there's, there's two, there's a, um, kind of a, a vicious sort of, uh, unholy alliance here between how hyperpartisan a politician is and the degree to which they're rewarded for that in our media ecosystem that taps into a general, uh, you know, it t- taps into something about us. It's not, you know, it's easy to point the finger, by the way, at the media. That is a big part of it, right? Tons of for-profit media, social media, you know, algorithms that elevate the most divisive to keep our attention and make us afraid and angry. All of those things are real. And politicians and our political systems where, you know, better than anybody, people are playing to a fringy primary base often to, to uh, maintain power and stay, you know, maintain their seat, um, you know, in uh, representatives in office. It beca- it's this really uh, unholy alliance between our political power structure and our media uh, incentives for profit that just keep everybody upset. And, and But we play a role in that, too. And I, it's always important for me to point that out. Starts With Us is about the way that we show up in personal us. accountability. We are, are not great citizens at large when it comes to thinking about every second of our attention as a vote that we cast. We no longer vote. Once every two years or four years, we vote every second of every day with our attention in an attention economy. So when we wait, wait, really quickly, just just the Marjorie Taylor Greenpeace, yeah, hold that for a second. That that's so. That's uh, we're going to change the name of this episode. This is going to be like uh, five facts that'll blow your mind about our division today, or something like that. Because something else that you just said, which is that we're voting not once or twice every four years, but we're voting every second of the day with our eyeballs. That's that's interesting, man. That's interesting because that's what you're saying. That's what drives the incentives of the politicians because your no, eyeballs are they, going, yeah. They, they publish those pieces and they put those segments on air and the algorithm surfaces them because we click them. 
And we can say, you know, well, we're wired for that. Yes, there's something evolutionary in our reptilian brains that like we're meant to be. But like, look, I don't eat uh, cake for every meal. You know, I show there, there's there are other areas of our lives in which we have to maintain our health and our discipline. And in a modern uh, digital uh, information ecosystem, this is one of them. We got to get healthy and we're not. And that's a thing that we control. We don't get to we can point our fingers at the politicians and the systems all day. Starts with us is about the way that we show up and our behaviors. And when we you know, one of the things that our study showed was that. Guess who uh, in that time period covered uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, whoever that period uh, ranked by the scorecard we used as the most divisive politician. Guess who covered her in two months uh, over 80 times? The New York Times. The New York Times? New York Times, right? I wouldn't have actually gotten that right. Similarly, over that time period, I think it was, I think the the most partisan um, politician, again, over that time period, it's a scorecard. Uh, I think it was um, Rashida Tlaib. It was Fox News who covered her the most times. So everybody is elevating the boogeyman or, you know, woman from the other side. And, you know, so so this is what's going on. Uh, 80 pieces in the span. Uh, and by the way, Marjorie Taylor Greene, worthy of coverage. I'm not saying don't cover it. But, you know, this is they they publish 80 pieces because we click on 80 pieces. And at some point, you got to start looking in the mirror because they're feeding you what you tell them you like. It's almost like. If you desire junk food, you're going to be served up junk food because that's what makes the most amount of money. That's what creates profit. That's what divides people. Let me just take a quick step back and just recap the last 20 minutes of this conversation because I think this last 20 minutes is, I think, the gold. You know, when I'm listening to this conversation, I'm I'm I'm, I'm the listener right now. I'm like, just I'm going to just take a pause for a second. 87% of Americans are exhausted. So when I am sitting here and just terribly annoyed and frustrated about our politics that I'm actually the majority. Then you're saying, Tom, that there's a perception gap that nine out of 10 Americans agree on six or so deeply held values. They might disagree on a lot of policies. We're not challenging whether or not we're divided or not, but we're saying is that there's the fertile ground for progress. And now you're saying that the media covers really extraordinarily divisive politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Rashida Tlaib four times more than what some might call the problem solvers. And the reason for all that that you've laid out for the audience is because that's what gets eyeballs, that's what drives engagement, and that in fact, you as a citizen are voting on a daily basis with your eyeballs. That's interesting. That's right. I don't really have much to add to that. You, well, you asked a good question before. I'd love to come back to it. The question Please. you asked was like, so what? Or now what? Right? Great. Well, yeah, well, I Let's walk, go there. You know, yeah. we'll What's the implication nice of all this? I'll walk, so the implication uh, is a fewfold. One is that those of us who are uh, in this movement building space uh, have a real opportunity to take these ideas to the mainstream. So if we're talking 87%, uh, agree on the exhaustion. We're talking nearly nine and 10 agreeing on the core values starts with us. I will not so humbly say that in our year and a half of existence, um, coming up on a couple million followers and, you know, people across social digital newsletter, our founding partners, which is evidence that there's demand for this. It's evidence that there's a market. It's incumbent upon you and me and everyone else, uh, doing this work and the people who make up our movement to turn that market into a mainstream movement. 
to have the banners and the language and the sense of meaning and purpose that mobilize people around these ideas. And there's a couple ways I think we can do that. One of them, crucially, is the work that I think you and your team do, which is to get on the ground with people and actually convene them in real space around these ideas and do the hard work on college campuses of having debates and screening films and actually having people connect to the movement. That is not a thing that our organization does by design. So thank you and thank your team for doing that. Where we might fit in is to t- is to show and not tell at scale. So basically, this is, so I talked a lot about the illuminate side of what we do. The demonstrate part is to tell the stories and elevate the stories of bipartisan um, problem solving, of people connecting across lines of difference to actually solve problems and improve their own lives. You can, you know, I won't shill it too much, but if you check out our Instagram or our YouTube channel, you'll see tons of stories like that. Yep. And I won't go as far as to say it's, you know, the vegetables to the junk food that you get elsewhere, but it is nutritional. And we, right. and we do our damnedest every day and we get a percent better every day at telling stories that are, inspir- that are inspirational and hopeful and activating and where every kind of American from every walk of life, wherever you are politically, ideologically, economically, demographically, geographically, you will see yourself in our stories and you'll see the power of what happens when you collaborate across lines of difference. It's a new kind of a patriotism that I think that we're establishing. I know that sounds lofty, but this is what to do. We walk out into the funhouse mirror. Yeah, it's going to take time, but the slow work of laying these bricks and in our case of trying to, you know, I'm mixing my metaphors, but trying to create these cannons and shoot these stories off into the world to reach millions of people and have them get the sense that like, wait a minute, there's people out there who feel like me. I'm a part of wait, 87% of this country? Okay, cool. And then that to me is, it's the upper funnel of this movement building that I and Starts With Us are obsessed with and pulling people in uh, to take action. And I guess that's what fundamentally makes this so difficult, right? Is because you almost said it yourself, it's, it's, you won't go as far as saying there's the vegetables to people's junk food, but you know, if everybody was just inclined to eating vegetables, we wouldn't have an obesity problem in America, right? It's, it's that fundamentally part of the challenge seems to be that we are not just, you know, inclined, uh, when we're on social media to consume some of this content, which makes it even more pressing and difficult, but necessary for you to almost package this nuance in a charismatic, exciting and interesting way, right? That's the dream. I mean, we, we, you know, this for your listeners, like we spend a lot of our time, it starts with us sitting with the greatest sort of depolarization and conflict resolution scholars in the business and looking them in the eye and with a straight face, asking them, can we turn your life's work into memes and TikToks and short form videos? And generally they're super pumped about that because that's a way for it to reach more people. And we work closely with them to maintain fidelity to the science, of course, but yeah, like, and, and, the, the reality is, again, I feel like I'm calling it's, it's not that hard. This stuff is really interesting and really inspiring, but we're just, look, I mentioned it right now. I think it's a matter of our health. Like I likened it to sort of, you know, we keep talking about the analogy of our food health, like our media health and our intake health. Um, it's also a matter, we talked about this a little bit in Gettysburg, that at some point it becomes a matter of national defense. We talked about 1865. Gettysburg, Gettysburg when we were there in 1865, right? 
Yeah. So, yeah, so I know right. was that a joke because I'm old? Like that's fine. You know something? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm saying that now. I, no, I'm saying that when people no, no, no. When people yeah, hear this yeah, and they're yeah. like Gettysburg, you're talking about it. It's like most people don't know that you can actually go to visit Gettysburg. It was just a joke yeah, about it. It's totally it's totally an active place. Yeah. So like you said, we we were over there at this conference. It's like uh-huh. you and I talked about when we were there. Is like uh, you know, John Roush described it as it's a matter of national defense. Right. Is our ability to be healthier in our information intake and our critical thinking and our collaboration That's across lines of difference. This protects us from foreign threat. It protects us from internal threat. Um, so there's a lot of metaphors that are really, and listen, at some point, you know what I mean? Uh, I don't know if someone, you know, in the comments is going to call me a climate alarmist. They might, but if the earth heats up another nine degrees, we are going to need to cooperatively solve problems like immediately like well at that point there'll be a literal fire under our asses to cooperate so i guess that'll help but you know i i really quickly i i want to end with one last question it's a question that we ask every every guest in the hopeful majority but before i get there what you've described you know part of the reason why this is called the hopeful majority is because i think that the political movement for my generation whoever's going to win the presidency in fact i think the movement is going to be about mobilizing this mainstream of Americans that are exhausted, but they have to be mobilized around a different axis. You know, Nixon had the silent majority, Newt Gingrich had the moral majority. You've coined something as the 87% being the exhausted majority. And I think there's a hopeful majority out there. And that's honestly my why. That's why I think this work matters. So let me ask you this. Um, what is your why? You know, why is it so important for you for this work to succeed? And I mean that in a very personal level, because ultimately to your point, we're going to get people involved and participating. Those stories have to be there. People have to resonate. There has to be an ethos to it. There has to be a deep, personal, deep emotional connection to this work. So what is that for you? Listen, it's hard for me to, I have three young kids and it's hard for me to separate anything I do for, you know, from them and from trying to create the conditions um, for their wellness and for their flourishing. So there's a, the, the deeply personal, there is just a, maybe in, in some ways or most ways connected to, um, to my family. Um, but I also feel like, I mean, you know, this about me, I, I grew up in a single parent household, you know, solidly like kind of lower middle class, blue collar household. And I lived a version of the American dream that seems, um, like it's either vanishing in reality or certainly like the faith in its possibility is vanishing. I was able through hard work and, uh, and community and, um, you know, uh, and, and maybe a little bit of good fortune, uh, to take advantage of the kind of upward mobility in my own life that America has to offer. And that's been a dream for a lot of my family came over here, you know, through Ellis Island and, um, I've been able to stand on the shoulders of, you know, the work of, uh, of giants to sort of set this country up as a wild experiment. And I think in the loftiest way, it comes down to my hope that we can, um, preserve what's great about this country. And, and maybe that I can pay it forward a little bit by, uh, preserving an environment in which that dream is possible for, for more people. Um, and that's specifically in my own little corner of Ann Arbor, Michigan, that my three kids will be able to be born into a world that um, has moved beyond these some of these problems and that they'll have newer and different and perhaps more evolved problems that they can uh, they can work hard to solve themselves. 
Tom Fishman, thank you for serving up a platter of nuance. Thank you for blowing people's minds about the state of polarization, the state of our politics. If anybody, and importantly, this is always the case with the hopeful majority, if people are critical, if they want to challenge more, if they want to look into these studies a little bit more, where can they find the information? Where can they go to look? Uh, oftentimes I find rather than just asking people to say, where can they find you? When we say, where can people find you to challenge you? They're more likely to go there. So where can people find you to challenge you? Yeah, Starts With Us is on uh, all your favorite uh, or least favorite social platforms. <laughs> so you can, uh, you know, come at me, bro, you know, on uh, there. And uh, yeah, you can go to startswith.us uh, to check out what we're up to. You know, a lot of our work is cataloged there. And uh, I mentioned, you know, citizensolutions.us as well as changethecoverage.com. Those are all those will redirect you to different parts of our website. So you can check out some of our research, too. It starts with us. Thank you, brother. Thanks so much for having me, Manu. Hopeful majority. I'm in. Well, that brings us to a close on episode number eight. Fascinating conversation with Tom Fishman. Hopefully that conversation blew your mind about our divisions and our politics, that in fact, we might actually not be that divided, that we might actually misunderstand our divisions. And that's necessary. Remember, every week, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your content, like and subscribe on YouTube, leave a review on the podcast. We need people to hear about this hopeful majority. I need your support. And we need each other to build this. Remember, we're fighting outrage, building nuance every Monday. See you next week. 